I enjoy see a family serve the Lord like that. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for being here today. I want you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, right at the end of the book, chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. And we want to look again at uh, one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross, the first saying when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a special privilege to have uh, my friends, uh, the Childers here, Rocky and Regina. I've known them for, for decades, many, many years. Uh, Rocky and I went to school together, were classmates, and also uh, along with Jimmy Oliver. That's what's wrong with us is Rocky. We hung around with him. Uh, Rocky actually lived across the street over here uh, when I first knew him on Fouché. About 200 yards from here, I told him while ago, and we played football together, and uh, I love you so much, my friend. It's always good to see you. Thank you for being here today. It's a real privilege. Luke chapter 23, we'll look there as a passage in a minute. I want to share with you a, a very powerful story I came across this week, a, a stirring story, a book called uh, Miracle on the River Kwai. Uh, written by Ernest Gordon, talked about when the uh, Japanese were occupying that area and um, they were building a, a uh, railroad in the jungle. Some of you have uh, watched the movie. I, I didn't watch it until about eight years ago. I'd heard about it, heard the song, you know, Comet. It, 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 anyhow, those of you that aren't old, you don't know that song. But uh, some of you get that. But uh, that came from that movie, and I thought, I've never seen the movie, and I got to watch it. But there were some uh, Scottish soldiers that had been uh, forced into labor to build the railroad along with others, but these particular uh, brigade of soldiers that had been captured by the Japanese were building the railroad, and they, they did a, a tool check uh, occasionally, I guess more for weapons, to be used against the Japanese and anything. And they discovered that a shovel was missing. So they gathered all the men, all those Scottish soldiers, and they demanded that the, the shovel be produced. And nobody moved. And the officer in charge of the, the Japanese side, he demanded that the shovel be produced on the spot or he was going to kill every one of the men. He pulled his rifle out. And the men could tell that, that he meant it. Finally, one of the Scottish uh, captives there uh, stepped forward. And the Japanese officer put away his gun and he picked up another shovel and uh, pulled that Scottish soldier, uh, that POW, apart from the men. And he began to beat him and beat him and beat him to death after he uh, finished. Uh, the Scottish men picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them uh, to another place. And they had another tool check to find out if there were any other shovels missing. Well, when they did the recount, they discovered that they had made a mistake. There was no shovel that was missing. They had made a mistake. There was no shovel that was missing. Word began to spread through the camp like wildfire, that an innocent man, one of their friends, had been willing to die for all of the others. And the writer in, in this book about uh, by the river Kwai there, that it had had a profound effect upon what was happening with them. They were ready to quit. They were angry. They were discouraged. And they began to treat each other like brothers. When the war was finally concluded and the Allies came in and uh, they took over the camp. And they lined the Japanese up in front of the, in front of the other soldiers and in front, of the, uh, in front of the captives, the POWs. And the Scottish soldiers began to look at those men, some of them that had tortured them. And they saw the... The man that had beat their, their friend to death. 
several of them said, uh, there, there's no more killing, there's no more hatred. Uh, this is a time for forgiveness. And uh, as the writer in the book began to write further, he, he went back to this time that this innocent man had decided to lay his life down for all of the others. It had a profound effect upon all the other men. In the first uh, saying of Jesus on the cross, we see the heart of God. They were not words of rage. They were not words of anger. They were words that the whole world needs to hear, that you need to hear, that I need to hear, not just one time, but on a, on a steady basis. They were words of forgiveness. I want you to look in your Bible and read this passage with me in Luke chapter 23. Notice in verse 32. Luke 23 and verse 32. And there were also two others, two other malefactors. I told you last week that this was not just a thief, thieves plural, but these were criminals. And uh, perhaps murderers because they had been given the death penalty. These are wicked men, especially wicked criminals. Two other malefactors led with him, that is Jesus, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, so the Lord Jesus was in the middle. Now here is the first statement from the cross. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. They gambled, that is the soldiers, at the foot of the cross for Jesus' garment because he was not wearing clothes there on the cross. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now here we discover that Jesus is offering forgiveness to the very people that were crucifying him and the offer is to you and to me and to your neighbors and your friends and your relatives and and people you don't know the the person you will see in the restaurant today the person that works next to your classmates he wants to forgive them i ask you today have you ever been forgiven of your sins i was forgiven of my sins 54 years ago this coming friday In 1968, on February the 18th, as a nine-year-old boy, when I put my faith and trust as Jesus Christ as my Savior, He had mercy on me, and He forgave me of my sins. Not because I was good, because I was not good. He forgave me because He was good. Did you know that people that live in a state of unforgiveness that it affects them physically, it affects them emotionally, and of course it affects them spiritually. They're separated from God. God. God never intended for you to live in this tension of unforgiveness. I was doing some research on this uh, this past week, and there was a study at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And here's this is a secular study, not a Christian study. This is interesting. Because for unforgiveness... Is, is, is not just a Christian, or forgiveness is not just a Christian virtue. And it, forgiveness has benefits that extend to unbelievers. But here's what the study said at John Hopkins Hospital. That forgiveness affects your health in a positive way. It lowers the risk of heart attack. It lowers your cholesterol. It improves your sleep. It reduces your blood pressure, reduces levels of anxiety, reduces your stress and depression. And forgiveness enables you to live longer. Now, the opposite of that is also true. When we 
live in unforgiveness. We live in stress. We live in guilt. And really, that's what drives all this is guilt because we're no, we know we're not right with God. So this first statement from the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them. It speaks to your most basic fundamental need in life, and that is to be forgiven of your sins. Now, there are three truths from this passage about the Lord Jesus Christ. I gave you one last week, and I want to give you one this morning, and that is what he was offering. What was he offering? Well, it's given to us in verse 34, Father, forgive them. He was offering us forgiveness. He was dealing with our, with our guilty conscience. God, God wants to remove guilt from your conscience. Guilt is God's gift to drive you to himself. He also wants to remove your, your record, your guilty record, your, your sin-stained record before a righteous and a holy God. Uh, we sang some songs about that this morning, about the blood of Christ, and about how the blood of Christ can, can, can cleanse you and wash you, because the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can pay sin's debt on your behalf. So what was he offering? He, he was offering forgiveness. Listen, for, uh, forgiveness is not attained by a bottle. It's not attained by a pill. It's not attained by a needle. What you're looking for is not in those things. It's not in fame. It's not in money. It's not in worldly success. Meaning in life and in joy and happiness is found in a walk with the Lord. It's, it's found in forgiveness. The psalmist said this. I love this. He said in Psalm 32.1, he said, Blessed, that has the idea of, of fulfillment, of happiness, even of significance, where I found what I've been looking for. I'm blessed. We have in our living room just two words that Paula put up there. It says simply blessed. Simply blessed. And we're not blessed because we're good. We're not blessed because we, we have a lot of money. We're simply blessed because of the presence of God upon our home because of what God has done for us. The Bible says in Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression, look at this, is forgiven. You know what a transgression is? That is a deliberate violation of God's law. Trans means to cross over a boundary. It means I'm going to, I'm going to deliberately rebel against the law of God. And God says, I will forgive you for your rebellion. And whose sin, look at this, and whose sin is covered. Another word for that in the Bible is the word atonement, to cover. So when God looks at your, your guilty record, it's covered. And I was sharing even this week with, with someone recently who's trusted Christ as their Savior, that when God looks at your guilty record, He doesn't see all of your sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees innocence. He sees purity. He sees holiness, but it's not yours because you don't have any. I have guilt. You have guilt. You have sin. And when Jesus was on, your, on the cross, he took your sin. He took your guilt, but he gave you his righteousness. And when you repent and you believe and you come to the cross and ask him for mercy, he forgives you and brings you into a new standing. What he was offering was forgiveness. Now, the second thing I want to look at is also in verse 34 and some other passages in this text, and that's where we'll stay today in Luke 23, is to whom did Jesus say this? To whom did he say these things? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who was he talking to? Well, he was talking to sinners, but I want, to, I want you to look at the types of people that he was talking to, because when you look at this, it will remind you of the type of person you are, and potentially the type of person you can be, and the places you've been. You know, you, you don't appreciate forgiveness until you appreciate your need for it. And this reminds all of us that I thank God that I've been forgiven, that I've been cleansed. Some people say, well, I know that I, I got forgiven the day I got saved, but what about all of my sins afterward? Uh, 
I got saved and all my sins were given. But what about when I sin afterwards? Don't you understand that when Jesus died for you, all of your sins were in the future? All of your sins. He didn't just die for your sins up to the day you got saved. He died for all of your sins, future sins. He died for the, the sins of the whole world. Future, present, every sin you've ever committed, past. To whom did he say it? Well, let me give four types of people here. Number one, he offered forgiveness to people that had lied about him. They lied about him. They misrepresented him. They lied to people about him. They lied about him. If you'll notice in your Bible there in Luke chapter 23, notice in verse 1. Luke 23, 1. And the whole multitude of them. Now the multitude were the religious leaders. If you go back in chapter 22 of Luke, you see the multitude was composed of the religious leaders. And the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus unto Pilate. Look at this. And they began to accuse him. Accuse him. The word accuse there is a legal term. It means to charge with an offense, a formal charge. Pilate was the governor. He was the Roman governor. He was under the Caesar. And he, he was a representative of Rome. And he did not want any Jewish trouble. He was there to squash the trouble, any uprisings. So here are these Jewish religious leaders, and they bring the Lord Jesus there because they don't like his teaching. They, they, he was threatening their kingdom for the true kingdom of God. And they begin to accuse him. Let me use another word there. They begin to lie about him. Look at verse 2. We found this fellow. Isn't that an interesting expression? You see, you see how demeaning they were? And by the way, Jesus was not just a man. He was a man, but he was God. He was 100% man as if he were not God. He was 100% God as if he were not man. But he was the God-man. He was the Son of God and God the Son. And the Bible says that we found this fellow. Here's what they said about him. Perverting the nation. That's the first lie. The word pervert there means to corrupt by posing. He's corrupting the nation. He wasn't corrupting the nation. He caused no disturbances. They lied. Notice the second lie. He, he was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar or taxes. He, he doesn't want them to pay taxes. You see, they're, they're appealing to Caesar or, or, or to Pilate because they know Pilate is very uneasy about any, because it, it would mean beheading for Pilate. And they're saying, hey, this is on the Roman watch. And they're lying about him. The third lie, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, he said worse than that. He said he was God. <laughs> but see, notice that they, they were selective. They cherry-picked the word. He is a king. In other words, Caesar's not the only Caesar. He, he's claiming he's a king too. All this political, all of these things were... They were lies. They were appeals. They were appeals to Pilate to get him to do away with him, to kill him, and to get him out of their hair. You move down to verse 10, Luke 23. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently, notice the expressions here, vehemently accused him. Vehemently accused him. They lied about him. They brought these charges to him and they lied him. They lied about him. Years ago, I was uh, with my son John. We were coming home and we were turning into our driveway. And uh, as I turned into to my driveway, a lady came up and she ran into the side of my car. And I got out, and uh, so I called you know, an officer to come there, help out. And now I'm turning right. You understand? I'm coming on the right side of the road, and I'm turning in. She says, well, he acted like he was going to turn left and then turn right. Well, why would I do that? This is my house. I'm not turning over. I'm going over here. 
And uh, I, I don't bode liars well. And I heard her telling the officer, and I felt, I felt my temperature rising. And it wasn't as much about, because I knew you could prove things by the tracks. And, and I was very upset. I said, ma'am, that's not the truth. And I said about like that, that's not the truth. Oh, yes, yes, you were. And I thought, I better, I better just dial it down here because I'm a Christian worse than that, not worse. But more than that, I'm a pastor, and I'm representing the name of Christ and, and, and our church to an extent. So I, I better be careful here. The officer pulled me over. He said, we know exactly what happened. We know how she hit you. You don't need to say anything else about it. We know, we know she hit you. It's her fault. Then he came back over and he said, the reason she's upset is she doesn't have insurance. She shouldn't have been driving and she's scared to tell her husband. So she concocted this lie to cover her story. Well, then I, I said, may I go talk to her? I'm not angry. He said, well, sure. I said, ma'am, I'm not angry with you. And I said, I'm sorry about your insurance. And I'm sorry about the situation with your husband. <laughs> then what I want is, but always tell the truth. I didn't do that. I don't do well with liars. But God doesn't either. You say, well, I haven't done this. I haven't accused the Lord of perverting the nation and forbidding to give. Have you ever lied? Are there any liars here? Well, here's one. I got two hands up. Have you ever told any lies? Lying is one of the worst things a human can do. One of the worst things you can do because it reflects the nature of Satan. The Bible says in John 8, he is a liar and he is the father of it. You know, we think that hell is for people that have done really bad things. You know, they've done things to children, and they murdered. That's what hell is filled with. Well, that's, that's a place for people like that. But hell is a place for people that have rejected Christ and people that have sins on their record. You want to see some of the sins? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful... So whoa, 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 wait, wait, fearful? Yeah. Because fear keeps you from doing what you ought to do. And the unbelieving. Did you know there's only one sin that God can't forgive? Only one. The sin of unbelief. It's the only one. The only sin that will ever keep a person out of heaven is unbelief. And the abominable, that, that is a sin that sins, class of sins that God especially hates. It's a classification of sins. And then murderers and whoremongers, sorcerers. He said, now, now you're with it, Rick. And idolaters, wait now. An idolater, that's when people put anything before their God. That, that's your job, your cars. Or anything, whatever do you love more than God. And all liars, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Listen, good friend, Jesus came to die for you. He came to forgive you. When he hung on the cross, he said, Father, Forgive them. And he came to forgive deceitful people, deceptive people, people that have lied and that have hurt people. He came to forgive you. Then I want you to notice in this passage that Jesus offered forgiveness to those that mocked him. It's one thing to be a liar. It's another thing to mock people, to make fun of them. Notice in verse 11, and Herod, Pilate didn't know what to do with Jesus, so he sent him to his arch enemy. Herod was a Jew that was kind of a representative uh, legal authority in the nation. And Herod, with his man, men of war, set Jesus at naught. 
And you know what that is? At naught, that means zero. That means no respect. That means he, he demeaned him as much as possible. He set him at naught. In fact, the word, the Greek word means this, to be of no account, to utterly despise. He made sure that the Lord Jesus knew that he had no respect for him at all. You know, every word in the Bible is important. And Herod, with his men of war, he got all of his soldiers there and all of the people. He wanted people to know how big Herod was. He was a very insecure man when you study him in history. And he put the Son of God, the, the, man, the, the one who created him, Jesus created us, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. The same was, was with God, and all things were created by Him and for Him. He created us. And these men are lying about Him, and they're mocking Him. They set Him at naught, not, and they mocked Him. Look at this. And arrayed Him in a gorgeous robe, and sent Him again to Pilate. The word mock means to make fun of others in a cruel way, to ridicule them, to have contempt for them. Now later when Pilate uh, scourged Jesus, the Bible says the Roman soldiers put a purple robe on him and they put a crown of thorns. Because kings need a crown. Let's put a crown of thorns on him. They, they need a robe. Let's put a, a, a robe on him. They begin to mock him. They need to be anointed. Let's spit on him. But before all that happened... Herod did a form of the same, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and set him at naught. They began to mock him. Then move down to verse 35 in the same chapter of Luke 23. At the foot of the cross, the people stood beholding. There was a real crowd there at the foot of the cross. And the rulers, these are religious rulers, also with them. They, look at this, they derided him. The word deride means to ridicule, to express contempt for. It has the idea of mocking. Saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. Well, he saved others, save yourself. And they said this over and over and over again. They derided him. Now, not just the rulers, but the soldiers also mocked him. Coming to him, offering him vinegar, saying, If thou be, here it is again, mocking, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. Mocking. The superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And now one of the malefactors, one of these criminals, wicked criminals, which were hanged, Look at this, railed on him, right beside him, just feet away. Railed on Jesus, saying, if thou be. All of these groups and individuals were, if you're Christ, if you're the Son of God, save thyself and us, one of the criminals. If you're who you say you are, save yourself and save us. And he railed on him. We don't use the word railed much anymore, it's... It means to defame, to speak evil of. We, in fact, the Greek word is the word blasphemy. We get the word blasphemy from it. This was the environment of the cross. It was an environment of mockery. And Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And I say this gently. I, I I say it directly but very gently, not, not to mock anybody here. I've heard preachers sometimes in a mocking way say things like this, but are there mockers here? I would raise my hand. Are there mockers here? When Job got sick, it affected his appearance. He was in a isolated area out where they put the garbage, scraping his body from the boils and all of the pus that oozed from him. And the people came by and 
perhaps the children and teenagers and groups of people. And they said things. In Job chapter 30, verses 9 and 10, And now am I their song. Job said, they make songs about me. I am their byword. They repeat my name, not in a good way. They abhor me. The word abhor means they hate me. They loathe me. They flee far from me. And look at this. Job, you ever seen this? And Job said, they spare not to spit in my face. Job said, these, Job said I can't help it. I, I'm, Satan has attacked my body. He's taken my family. He's taken all of my money. I'm grieving. I'm hurting physically. And, and people are mocking me. I'll tell you, when you'll get compassion is, is when you get sick. Or when somebody gets sick in your family. Or you lose your spouse. Or you lose your mama, daddy. Or you, or you lose your, your child. What are, what are they always, what's wrong with them? They're just sad all the time. Well, cheer up. Well, come on, come on, get with it. Be happy. And it's just so easy to mock and to talk about people. Are there any mockers here? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 1, A wise man heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. You ever mock your parents? Any teenagers here? Any college kids? Well, I just wish they would leave me alone. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. There's a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. Proverbs 30 and verse 17. The, look at this. Here's how people mock. The Bible says, The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother. Sometimes it's not done with actions. It's done with an attitude, but it's expressed through the countenance, through the eyes. Do you know how a person has spiritual life? It's through their eyes. Do you know where sorrow is seen? It's through the eyes. The, the, the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms talks about the light, L-I-G-H-T, of the eyes. You want to minister to people, watch their countenance, watch their eyes. But mockery comes through the countenance. I remember my kids came home one day and they said, ooh, they were talking about the neighbors. They were, they're kids were the same age as my kids and they said ooh the way they treat their mom and dad I said what did they say it wasn't what they said it's when they turn around they make faces here's what they they make faces at their parents are there any mockers here the Bible says the ravens of the valley shall pick it out that is the eye the eye that mocketh at his father and the young eagles shall eat it. In the wilderness, they would go out, and when there would be a dead carcass to make sure it was dead, they would pick at the eye because it was so sensitive. And if it didn't move, the animal's dead. It's game. But if it moved, it's still alive. And that's how you know you have life in the eye. Are your eyes dead? Do you mock with your eye? Do you mock your parents? Do you mock authority or any mockers? Jesus died for you. You know, we read through, yeah, all of these mockers at the cross, and we never applied these issues of lying and mockery to ourselves. And then disadvantage people. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 5, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker. And he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Oh, look, look what they're driving. Look where they live. Why don't they get some new clothes? 
I remember one time I was attending a homeschool conference with my wife, and our car up up in the engine, the some oil was escaping, and we couldn't get it fixed. And all of a sudden, it, it began to come out the back of the pipe, exhaust, and I was trying to I was trying to get away. I was trying to get out, and the people were back there, and and they were so angry with us. And I, I just wanted to get away. I was so embarrassed. You ever pull up somebody and they're holding up? What, what do you get off the side of the road? One day it'll be you. I can't believe people. They ought to just buy a new car. We just mock people. Maybe you haven't mocked God, but you've mocked your authorities. You've mocked people just so easily and people with disabilities and people that are different than you. Sometimes people that are hurting and you don't understand. But if God can forgive these mockers at the cross, he can forgive you. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you. God, forgive me. I need Jesus. Oh, yeah, hell is made for all those murderers. No, hell's made for these people. He's made for people like us. And then he offered forgiveness to those that beat and scourged him. We come to the physical aspect of the cross. They beat him and they scourged him. Pilate said in verse 16 of Luke 23, he told the leaders, he said, look, I think he's innocent. John 19, he said, I find no fault in him. But here in Luke 23, 16, he said, I will therefore chastise him and release him. In other places, it says that the religious leaders and and the, the soldiers... That they punched him, they spit in his face, and and they they beat him with their swords and their walking sticks, and he was black and blue, and, and they scourged him. Scourging was terrible. Most of the time, scourging they had a like a concrete pillar, and they would wrap a man around and, and bending and tie him to where his back was taut, t a u t, very tight. They had a professional that did this, about 12 inch long, tethered to a handle of, of long leather pieces that had been cut up. And at the end were pieces of metal and, and bone and rock. And he would come up and he would lift his hand and he would come across, and you could hear it whistling through the wind. And it didn't just, not just like a bull whip, it had these bony things like fish hooks on the end and they would latch into a person and then he would rip it back. And many times he wasn't careful as it would hit the exposed rib cage in the back, but it would hit all over his torso and sometimes his face. And Josephus, the Roman historian, said that many men were disemboweled. That means that it literally cut away their stomach muscle and their their intestines spilled out upon the ground. Forgive me for the frankness. You need to understand, you need to understand what Christ endured when he was on the cross and before the cross. Father, he's hanging there and he says, Father, forgive them. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14, the Bible says, As many were astonished. Now, that's an old English word. We get the word astonished from it. But here's what's interesting. As many were astonished at thee. The Hebrew word means to be stunned. Now, here's what's fascinating. When people looked at Jesus, they, they were astonished. They were stunned. But it means to the point of being quiet where they just wanted to be alone. They saw him there as he was crucified, as he was beaten to a pulp, black and blue, and and pierced and scourged. 
And I believe the jeering, the noise had gone down. And his visage, now this is what they're seeing as they see him, was so marred. The word marred there means disfigured more than any man. More than any human. But they'd never seen anything like this. A disfiguration. And his form, the Hebrew word there means his appearance, and it really means the shape of his body more than the sons of men. Now, if I can put it this way, when they looked at the cross, they weren't seeing a human. That's why they were stunned and they were quiet. They, they knew who it was. They knew it was Jesus, but it didn't, not only didn't look like him, it didn't look like a person. And I, I hesitate to say this because it sounds blasphemous, but I'm going to say it on the authority of the scriptures here. What is that? Is that an animal? Is that a person? Is that a dog? What what did they put on the tree? That can't be a person. And they were so shocked, they were so stunned that they, they went off by themselves and quiet. That's what the word astonished means. You know, you hear that and say, Well, I, I haven't I didn't crucify Jesus. Well your sins did. And maybe you didn't participate in, in, in the the crucifixion and you didn't participate in the scourging. But could there be people here that have slapped people around and bullied people? Paul did in First Timothy 1 verse 13, who was, Paul said before, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. Look at this, an injurious. I want you to see that injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The word injurious means to mistreat others with insults, even to the point of physical or emotional injuries. It's a bully. Many years ago, I was preaching on this text. And I'd invited a, a friend here, and he got saved later. And he said, do you, know, do you know when God spoke to me in your sermon? God spoke to me when you preached. He said, when you read 1 Timothy 1.13, and you explained injurious. And I said, that's me. He said, I'm a bully. I bully people. I bullied my wife. I bully children. I bully people at work because I can He said, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I don't want to be that way anymore. In the last days, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 2, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Look at this, without natural affection. Do you know what that means? It's not what you think. It means to have a hard heart toward your family. Natural affection is is to love your kin. It means you, you don't even have a natural affection for your nieces and your nephews and your children and your parents. In the last days, people will be truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. That means to be without self-control. You just go off on, intent, on, on tangents with people. Fierce. Without tenderness, but to be very aggressive and intense towards people. This bullying. And then despisers of those that are good. It means to be hostile to virtue or hostile to anything that is good. Are there any bullies here? You're so choleric. Oh yeah, I get things done. Oh yeah, we see the damage. We see the damage. Yeah, you get things done. Are there any bullies? Oh, listen, God can work in your life and do work. You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. And then last of all, he offered forgiveness to those that crucified him. Verse 33, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. I may talk about this in, a, in another service. I'll just read these two paragraphs here. Listen to this. 
Jesus carried the massive top beam weighing about a hundred pounds on his shoulders as he marched to his death. Sleepless, beaten, and frail, he fell under its weight. Soldiers seized a nearby man, Simon of Cyrene, who was likely in town for Passover, and they forced him to help a different Passover sacrifice Jesus to carry his beam up the hill of death. Jesus of Nazarene went to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he was laid down on the wood. Large nails like railroad spikes were pressed against his skin. A soldier raised a hammer, blow fell again and again, one after another, rupturing wrists and feet, exploding nerves, binding Jesus in place. When you died on a cross, it was not from bleeding to death. Death on a cross came slowly from asphyxiation. Every time a crucified person took a breath, he would have to lift himself up by the nails pressing down on the wounds stressing bones and tendons and ligaments. Nerves would detonate with pain. Air would fill the lungs and then in exhaustion, the crucified would fall back on those same nails holding him up. Up and down, up and down they went. This could go on for days. And to speed up the process, soldiers would break the legs of the crucified so they could not get any more air to breathe. And so it went. Jesus gasping for air, pain in the wounds, gasping for air and pain in the wounds, on and on and on and on until he saw his final breath, exhausted, abused, hungry and choking. He gave up his life. And he said to these people that crucified him, Father, forgive them. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God committeth, He demonstrated, He proved, He showed His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And the word forgive there, Father, forgive them, is in the present continual sense. You know what that means? Here's what it means. Get this. He didn't just say it once. It means he said it over and over again. When they scourged him, he said, Father, forgive them. When they put the crown of thorns in his brow, he said, Father, forgive them. When they spat on him, he said, Father, forgive them. When they put the nails in his hands and his feet, he said, Father, forgive them. And over and over and over as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. This was not something scripted that he just said, Father, forgive them, because he was supposed to. Listen, this was out of the overflow of his heart because God commended, he demonstrated, he proved his love toward us and that while we were sinners while we were reprobates while we were lost while we were bullies while we were mockers while we were liars Christ died for us and he died for you and he said he said I'm going to stop there there's more to say I'll pick this up. I'm past my time. Let me tell you a story. A little boy, Johnny and Sally, went to see their grandparents. They called them in the living room. They said, Johnny, we we brought you, Sally, some gifts. And they gave the gifts out. And they gave Johnny a little, a little slingshot. Johnny tried and tried to use it. He went out in the woods, and he just wasn't any good. He just wasn't good at it. He was terrible with the slingshot. Then Johnny came back up to the house, his grandparents' house, and there he he spied a little little duck they had, and it really was kind of a pet duck to his grandmother. served no purpose, just a little pet duck. And just spontaneously lifted up his slingshot and pulled it back and... Let the pebble go. 
and it hit the duck, and the duck fell over, and he ran over to it and lifted it up, and he had killed the duck. And all of a sudden, the little boy was terrified. He looked around, and he went over, and he saw a wood pile, and he lifted, lifted some of the wood, and he hit the duck. And he was relieved, and he looked around. All of a sudden, he saw his sister who watched the whole thing. Then he went into the house, and that night, his grandmother said, uh, Sally, would you wash the dishes after supper tonight? And Sally said, well, grandmother, I don't know that I, I need to. Johnny told me that he wanted to wash the dishes tonight. And she leaned over and she said, remember the duck. So Johnny went over there and washed the dishes. And the next morning, the grandfather said, hey, Johnny, let's go fishing. I may want to take you fishing. Johnny went and got his pole and he came out and she said, Granddad Johnny said he didn't want to go fishing. He wanted to stay here and help grandmother with the house. And she whispered in his ear, remember the duck. So Johnny reluctantly let her go with the grandfather to go fishing. He stayed there to help with his chores and his sister's chores. And on and on and on it went. Finally, he became so weary of it that he went to his grandmother. He said, I need to talk to you. He said, I am so sorry, but I know you haven't seen your duck. He told her what happened. I killed your duck. With tear-filled eyes, he said, I am so sorry. His grandmother said, Johnny, I know. She said, I was looking out the kitchen window. I saw the whole thing. I saw it happen. And I've been watching the way that Sally's been treating you. And I've been wondering how long that you were going to allow her to keep making you her slave. Some of you have become Satan's slave, as it were, where everything you're doing is just trying to perform and do things, trying to please God. And you can't do that. You can't do it. It won't work. There's always something else to do. You know, how, you know how to clear the record. You just have to come to God and say, God, I have sinned. I did wrong. I messed up. I was a bully. I lied. I cursed. I'm a thief. And I've broken your law and I'm really sorry. And I believe when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. And right now I claim what he did on my behalf. Would you forgive me? And he did that for me when I was nine years old. And you know what? I still sinned after that. But as I told somebody this week, after that I wasn't sinless, but I did sin less. I sinned less because he changed my heart. And because he saved me and he forgave me, I love him. I want you to bow your heads with me if you would. Thank you for your kind attention today.